0: Hello and welcome to Poetry Nonstop. I'm Patrick Widdis, and this is the second part of my interview with Jonathan Davidson. If you haven't already done so, do tune into the first half for a discussion of his poem Printing, and how to find inspiration for your own poems in technology. But now we've turned to Jonathan's new book, A Common Place*. It's a poetry collection But it's a lot more than that too, as Jonathan explains.
1: Yes, a commonplace. It's got a subtitle, which is a commonplace, Apples, Bricks and Other People's Poems. So this is possibly a slightly unusual book of poems because it is uh, mostly my poems, but also it features a dozen poems by other poets, which I have got permission to republish. And it features a commentary throughout the book an introduction from me at the start and then just me writing as I go through each of the poems why I like this other person's poem why I've written this poem uh, and at the very end it has a gazetteer listing all of the individual places I've mentioned because place is very important to me and it has a bibliography listing all of the books I might have stumbled across in order to write the poems including some useful books on bricks and some useful books on apples uh, but also other books of poetry and, and some pieces of music so that was a strange thing to do because traditionally when we assemble a poetry book the idea is you can only put in the poems you might have a little introduction that's not very common you might have some footnotes and they're normally at the back of the book Uh, but beyond that you are saying to your reader this is just a text and in terms of you describing who you are and how you've written those poems that normally gets relegated to a short bibliographical piece at the back of the book or maybe some quotes from other people saying you know this is a poet who does x or y or whatever so I'm turning that whole process on its head because I'm essentially saying, in order to allow people to appreciate not only my poems, but the other poems I selected, I need to give them the means of understanding. I.e., if I am going to talk about, uh, use brick making in my poem or use a quadratic equation as a metaphor, then... I should say a little bit about that first of all alert people to what it is if they don't know so people who don't know what a quadratic equation is and let's face it i don't that's obvious in the poem i did briefly at one point you know they can see what what we're talking about here and and they can know why i chose that idea in order to uh inform that poem and if i'm picking a poem by somebody else to feature in my collection then I obviously want to say why I've chosen it and why I think it's a great poem and how it fits in with my other poems and how it reflects on them. So it is probably one third a prose book uh, and two thirds a poetry book. That means because it's got poems of other people in it, it it won't be eligible for poetry prizes. It will have to circumnavigate the traditional means of glorifying a work of poetry, Um, but possibly it will be useful for people because They will read it and it will be as if they were at a poetry reading and I was introducing the poems, helping them understand them as soon as possible, giving them what I felt they needed to get to them. And none of the poems are complicated and all of the information I provide could easily have been Googled, but I just feel, well, life is short. It's much easier if I just say, oh, this is this and that's that and you need to know that, but off we go. And I put it in the book also, the commentary, because I know that I won't be around forever. That I won't be doing poetry readings in 40 years' time, I'll be dead. And if, if the book still li- lives, then the book will be able to do my work for me. It will be able to uh, tell people what I would have said had I stood up and read the poem. So it's a book which is trying to be overtly friendly towards the reader. It is trying to give them the confidence that they can enjoy the poems I've selected by other people as much as I have, and that my poems are not trying to. Uh, be distant or aloof, but are trying to be close and immediate and might be of some use to them if they are looking for a form of words to express an experience they might have been for themselves. So it's a strange book in that respect. Um, I called it commonplace also because it refers to the fact that I come from a commonplace. I come from a small working class town in North Berkshire, South Oxfordshire. There are working class towns in the south of England. It had a power station. It had a railway junction. It had an army camp a very very ordinary place a very commonplace but also I've used the idea of commonplace to refer to those books which started to be gathered in the renaissance period by people who had time and leisure featuring interesting quotes and poems and cuttings and well maybe not cuttings but uh, uh, things they wanted to uh, reflect back on later and so people would produce these handmade commonplace books and the book I've produced has got my commentary and my poems and other people's poems and also has lots and lots of footnotes to give extra detail about things. If you didn't know who uh, a certain person was, then I will explain in the footnote so you're not um, at a disadvantage. So it becomes a commonplace book. It becomes a gathering of, if not wisdom, certainly things I've looked up on the internet uh, and a gathering of ideas and and, uh, a starting point for other directions. So um, if if you're intrigued by particular subject or an idea or a person i've mentioned then i hopefully give you the information to allow you to head off and make your own journey towards that person to find out more about them so it is um the first time i've tried a book like that possibly it might be the last i honestly don't know how the world will receive it because it doesn't feel ordinary and i suspect a lot of people will say that it is not right and proper for a poet to explain him or herself it is important that a poet presents their poems as if they were pieces of unseen criticism and that the reader was sitting an exam in order to appreciate those pieces of unseen criticism well you know my last my last exam was when I was 18 in English literature and I got grade CA level so you can tell I don't like exams I don't like to be tortured by poems I want the poem to be opened up to me so I've opened up these poems for readers so many people may not find that Comfortable, they may sooner have a poem without any of that stuff but some readers will feel that I have helped them to enjoy the book and help them to develop their own reading interests and their own writing taste perhaps and in the back of my mind I always have this feeling that I want the book to be something I could give to my now very elderly mother and to be nothing in it that she wouldn't feel that I was helping her with, and she's an intelligent woman, but, you know, there are things I know that she doesn't, shall we say. And I I wanted to be a book that I could give to friends and relatives who are not poetry people, who have no skin in the game, who aren't interested in spending hours uh, ruminating over opaque references, um, but people who just want to read and perhaps enjoy the sound of language and enjoy the meaning and have a sense of connection. I don't think it is going to generate any PhDs. Uh, unfortunately for me, but um, good for the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, um, you have uh, published other more traditional collections. Did you feel when you were writing those that uh, you were limited by uh, sort of uh, traditional forms of publication?
1: I suppose when I started, I never stopped to think. I just accepted the rules that were given to me. And the rules were you, first of all, submitted poems to magazines and to competitions. And then you try to get a pamphlet published and maybe a second pamphlet and then you try to get a collection published and then maybe a second collection and you hope that they'll be noticed and reviewed and read and they might have been in small number. So right up until my 30s and 40s, I just obeyed the rules and believed that this was a natural order of things. And then you get to a certain age in your life when you think, I'm not sure this is natural. And of course, the whole of our poetry world is an unnatural construct. It's the results of lots of different forces coming into play. Uh, Many people these days are referring to the poetry-industrial complex, which is a phrase to reference the fact that the poetry we get is not because, and the form we get that poetry in, is not necessarily the best way that poetry might be produced and consumed. It is the way that those people in positions of power and influence have decided that poetry should be produced and consumed. And we are driven by the goal of producing single collections which will produce awards and the power and glory that comes with that. And at the very top of that tree are the commercial poetry presses who certainly are looking to select the very best in their view, the most profitable poets in their view for them to publish and to sell back to us. That is not necessarily the only way that we can share poetry and that's not the only way that poetry... Can be needs to be produced or consumed by people, read by people, heard by people. So in my 40s and early 50s, I've started to rebel against that and to think, well, maybe I should just do it differently. Maybe I should just ask myself, how do you want to get poetry, Jonathan? What what do you want to hear from the poet? What do you want to know about? And I realised that I like it when I bump into somebody and they tell me about interesting things. My, my dearest friends are people I go and have a drink in the pub with when we used to and... I like it when they know more about things than I do and they can tell me about something I didn't know about and that's for me is a pleasure and you know that's why I read that's why I read lots of arcane obscure stuff you know to find out stuff I didn't know to help me understand the world so I had written traditional books and published traditional books but the turning point was my most recent book was not a book of poetry but a book about poetry called on poetry and this came about because my publisher the poetry business Peter Sampson, particularly said to me we're going to start a series of books where poets just write about poetry rather than publish their own poetry would you just write about poetry so I wrote about poetry I wrote about my ex- experience of it how I'd heard it how I'd read it how it influenced my life different ways I'd found of um, interacting with it and realized that because I'd done lots of different things in my life in concerning poetry But I had a lot of different things to say about it. And a lot of them were about how poetry was received and heard and read, not about how poetry was written. And I realised I had an interest in that, in how poetry was received. And the reception I got from that book was universally positive from the modest number of people who read it, because they felt I had suddenly looked at poetry, not from the point of view of literary criticism, or from the point of view of the reputation of poets, but from the point of view of the listener and the reader, And from the point of view of poetry being an art form that we often engage with very early on in our lives and stays with us for decades to the very end of our lives. And that that relationship with poetry has got nothing to do with the publication of slim volumes, but everything to do with how we first came across a poem when we were a child or a young person, or when we were in the middle of our lives and somebody died and we needed a poem. So I, that opened up ideas for me. And when I came to write the, the, next, the, the current poetry book, the one I'm about to publish, it suddenly seemed unnatural to just offer the poems without any additional work. And it also seemed unnatural to just offer my poems because I don't exist in the vacuum. And oddly enough, I rarely read my own poems. Of an evening, I'm reading other people. Uh, I, you know, Weeks go by, months go by, years go by, when I never really read any of my poems other than the ones I happen to be working on. I read hundreds of other people's poems. So it felt more natural to say, I, I should bring some of these poems into my book because when I talk about my poem, I want to also mention this other person's poem because if I hadn't read that poem, I'd never written my poem. So in the current, the new book is a, a poem about the poem Why Brownly Left by Paul Muldoon, which I must have read when I was 21 or 22 and it changed my life. It suddenly opened up. way of writing poetry I hadn't experienced a contemporary Irish poet at that time in the early 1980s. So I felt I should write a poem about a poem. I don't actually feature his poem in my book because it's available widely elsewhere but I want people to know that you know I needed that poem to get to my poetry.
0: Uh, Maybe should uh,
1: hear enough of your poems at this point. Okay with pleasure. The one I'm going to read uh, is the first one I'm going to read certainly Uses the same idea as uh, the printing one. Really, it, it's uh, taking a, 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 a co- complex, uh, to my mind, complex mathematical challenge, and use that as a way of recollecting a time in my life and thinking about what really is important in our lives. So it's called a quadratic equation, and in in the book that's about to be published, there's a little description of what a quadratic equation means. Now. When I was helping my daughter do her GCSE maths, neither of us were terribly maths friendly. And briefly for a moment, I thought I understood quadratic equations. It didn't last very long. Um, and this poem is about me and my daughter Molly spending literally, I think, three hours <laughs> trying to work out how to solve her maths homework, working through the books and thinking, God, we don't understand what's going on here. What is going on here? But looking back, it was a, a really you know, interesting moment, it's nice to spend that time with my daughter, I was no help to her whatsoever. Um, In the end, she had to work it out herself. But it reminded me that um, the language of mathematics, uh, particularly the use of the kind of magical X as being something you're looking for, can mean something else. So it's called a quadratic equation. A dad and a daughter are solving a quadratic equation. They are seeking the value of X, using the appropriate process, beginning with factorisation. A solution is proving elusive. They are outside the problem looking in at curtained windows. Upstairs, a son, who's employed in the building trade, plays guitar, unaware of the mathematical impossibility of equal temperament, and the mum is in the front room working out the likelihood of character A killing character B, before the end of the episode. The daughter and the son cross on the stairs. She is fractious and has been sent to bed while the dad puts in a couple more hours, but to no avail. Whatever the value of X, they shan't know tonight. And perhaps X has no value, or perhaps it has many values. Perhaps it is discovered in the dissonant chords that the son untangles, or in the loaded silence between character A and character B before the gun goes off. Or perhaps it's simply that which cannot be expressed, although it is known to exist. I I should probably have said that factorisation factorization is a process you use to break down numbers into smaller numbers, so I was told, and equal temperament is a description of how musical uh, notes work across the scale, Slightly more complicated. And again, this is something I read about and briefly understood it. I can't properly describe it now, but I know I enjoyed reading a book about it and trying to get my head around the mathematics of Western notation. So that's why that's mentioned. And fortunately, in, in the new book, I do give some explanations of those two things. So people don't need to be outflanked by those phrases. But of course, it was about love, which I think we can say is something that sometimes we cannot express if only we know it exists.
0: Yeah, I like the way uh, it starts with this uh, simple scene and kind of unfolds from that.
1: Yes, I suppose I, looking back, you know, I wrote it many years later and I just kind of remembered almost watching myself from a distance, me and Molly trying to solve this blooming maths thing and it getting dark outside and the light probably flittering through the curtain and all of that and we were trying to solve a mathematical equation but, you know, also it was about a father and a daughter and that relationship, you don't say things to your children because you live with them. And at that time, I did live with her. Um, but it's nice looking back to think actually that was also about love as well as mathematics.
0: what Was it difficult uh, publishing this new collection?s With all its um uh, oddities,
1: <laughs> oddities is the right word. It's published by the Poetry Business under the imprint of Smith Doorstop, and I've had two other books published by them from um i think 2011 was the first one but i'd known particularly one of the editors peter sampson for an enormous number of amount of time 35 years probably he started the poetry business uh, i imagine in the early 1980s maybe late 1970s so this is ancient history for many people and at that time they still run the magazine called the north and i remember i was in the north of england living in scunthorpe i submitted some poems to the north Peter quite rightly rejected them. But then for some strange reason, he sent me not only a rejection letter, and this was in a days of post, but he sent me a pamphlet called Human Geography by Simon Armitage that they'd published. And this was before Simon had, had his first book, Zoom Out, and before he was known by very many people. And Peter's note said, sorry, we can't publish your two poems. We like them, but not enough. I think you might enjoy this pamphlet. And he was damn right. You know, suddenly here was a guy a couple of years older than me, writing poems which absolutely reflected ordinary life, common life and the things he'd done. He'd gone to Portsmouth Polytechnic to do geography and I'd gone to Leicester Polytechnic. So so Peter just struck up that relationship with me at that point. And from then on, even though he wasn't publishing me and I was originally published by ARC, I always felt he was in the back of my mind as the person who wanted me to write poetry. And between my book published by ARC in the 90s, and the book that they published in 2011, I had 17 years without a poetry book being published. I think I might have published a pamphlet, but essentially I withdrew from poetry. I wrote it privately, but I didn't. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a competent at that point. But Peter kept me in his mind, and it was he who phoned me up one day and said, we're going to publish some books this year. We wondered if you'd like to submit a manuscript. So I've been very lucky because I didn't have to submit that book to him. And the following two books I've had through Smith doorstop have been, first of all, him saying, do you want to write about poetry? Yes. So I had a commission as it were. And then the second book, that this book is about to be published. The second poetry book, him just saying, you know, we do want another book from you. So, you know, have a go and let's see what we get to, where we get to. So I haven't had the trials that other people have had, but, To get my first book published, which was called The Living Room, published by ARC, I think in 1994, I did what everybody does. I sent manuscripts to publishers and heard nothing or was rejected. And eventually a publisher said, yes, we'll publish it. So um, the new book hasn't been difficult to get published. I think where it's going to struggle is to get reviewed and to get heard. And of course, I'm publishing it in the middle of a pandemic. So all of the things I'd diligently got organised, the readings and the events and so on, Uh, All of those have either disappeared, most of them have disappeared, or they've gone online, which is great, but, you know, it's not the same. So, you know, I've done a little reading with a group in um, Cork in Ireland, and I would have been there, and I would have had a bag of books, and I would have been selling those books, and I wasn't there, and some people probably bought some books online, but probably not very many. So it's going to make it harder to get the book uh, read by people. It isn't the best of times.
0: Well, it uh, sounds like an amazing idea and uh, really interesting. So, uh, yeah, I hope people do uh, pick up on it and uh, I'm sure they'll uh, enjoy it and learn something. Thank you. Yeah, um, maybe got a poem to finish with?
1: Yes, yes. So I'm going to finish with a poem uh, called The Backroads. And in the book, I, I say a bit about it. You might be able to appreciate it without the notes, but I do say to people that... My dad, who died a few years ago, we used to go out walking and cycling with him. We didn't necessarily want to, but when we were kids, me and my sister, you know, holidays were spent walking and cycling through England, Wales and Scotland and Ireland. And we went with him and he had a propensity for saying, I think we'll take the back roads. I think I know a shortcut. Let's go this way. And sometimes he did know that route and it was fine. And very often it turned out he didn't know it terribly well. He'd last been there in 1947 and things had changed a bit. And on at least one occasion, I remember me and my dad getting to a, a little footbridge across a ravine in South Wales. Uh, and there was a sign on the footbridge saying condemned. But we'd traveled so far to get to that point. But my dad said, Well, we'll just try and cross it, shall we? So we crawled across this bridge with missing slats and the water foaming beneath with our bicycles to get to the other side of it to carry on our journey. In the end we probably only saved about a mile, but you know, he was determined we were going to take the back roads. And on another occasion, uh we were in I think it was the Isle of Whites and a family walk family holiday and we were walking one day and then we managed, I'm fairly certain, to cross a rifle range and I don't think it was entirely safe, but that was the route that had chosen. So I wrote this poem because I found myself on a number of occasions doing exactly the same as he did thinking that looks like a shortcut. I'll take that. And in fact, even this morning I was out on my bike in South Warwickshire and I saw a little pathway and I thought that looks like a shortcut. I'll take that. And I got a half mile along it. And there was a sign saying, uh, you know, no cycling. Okay. It's a footpath, but I could still ride along it. I Hoisted a bike over a couple of styles. That wasn't too difficult. And then the path drove through this, very tightly wooded and nettle little trail and I had to pull my bike through it and I got stung by nettles and I thought god I've not learned how I? I am relentlessly optimistic when it comes to my <laughs> navigational skills and I'm just like my dad I ended up taking this through nettles so this poem is called the back roads and he would take the back roads that often led to plough fields barbed wire farmers with shotguns and once to a wooden footbridge over a river with a sign saying "condemned." We crossed, of course. That was my dad. Where is he now? I swore I wouldn't take the back roads. But here I am, lifting my bike over a stile, wading a Ford, crossing a rifle range. Here I am on the back roads. And that figure ahead, vaulting a five bar gate as one shouldn't. It is my father.
0: That was Jonathan Davidson. His book, A Common Place, is coming out sometime this month. I've been reading it. It's written with a lot of passion and humour. There are wonderful poems and much to explore. I find myself breaking off to search for poems and other things that are mentioned. You can find details of where to buy it on the website poetrynonstop.com. Also, don't forget to try Jonathan's writing exercise in the first part of this podcast. I look forward to seeing what technological poems you produce. Until next time, thanks for listening, and keep writing!